Book One, Chapter Two of The Coming of Bill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Don W. Jenkins. Ruth states her intentions. At about the time when Laura Delane Porter was cross-examining Kirk Winfield, Bailey Bannister left his club hurriedly. Inside the club a sad, rabbit-faced young gentleman who had been unburdening his soul to Bailey was seeking further consolation in an amber drink with a cherry at the bottom of it. For this young man was one of nature's cherry-chasers. It was the only thing he did really well. His name was Grayling, his height five feet three, his socks pink, and his income enormous. So much for Grayling. He is of absolutely no importance either to the world or to this narrative, except in so far that the painful story he has been unfolding to Bailey Bannister has so wrought upon that exquisite as to send him galloping up Fifth Avenue at five miles an hour in search of his sister Ruth. Let us now examine Bailey. He is a faultlessly dressed young man of about twenty-seven, who takes it as a compliment when people think him older. His mouth, at present gaping with agitation and the unwanted exercise, is, as a rule, primly closed. His eyes, peering through gold-rimmed glasses, protrude slightly, giving him something of the dumb pathos of a codfish. His hair is pale and scanty, his nose sharp and narrow. He is a junior partner in the firm of Bannister and Son, and it is his unalterable conviction that, if his father would only give him a chance, he could show Wall Street some high finance that would astonish it. The afternoon was warm. The sun beat down on the avenue. Bailey had not gone two blocks before it occurred to him that swifter and more comfortable progress could be made in a taxicab than on his admirably trousered legs. No more significant proof of the magnitude of his agitation could be brought forward than the fact that he had so far forgotten himself as to walk at all. He hailed the cab and gave the address of a house on the upper avenue. He leaned back against the cushions, trying to achieve a coolness of mind and body. But the heat of the day kept him unpleasantly soluble, and dismay, that perspiration of the soul, refused to be absorbed by the pocket-handkerchief of philosophy. Bailey Bannister was a young man who considered the minding of other people's business a duty not to be shirked. Life is a rocky road for such. His motto was, Let me do it. He fussed about the affairs of Bannister and Son. He fussed about the welfare of his friends at the club. Especially he fussed about his only sister, Ruth. He looked on himself as a sort of guardian to Ruth. Their mother had died when they were children, and old Mr. Bannister was indifferently equipped with the paternal instinct. He was absorbed body and soul in the business of the firm. He lived practically a hermit life in the great house on Fifth Avenue. And, if it had not been for Bailey, so Bailey considered, Ruth would have been allowed to do just whatever she pleased. There were those who said that this was precisely what she did, despite Brother Bailey. It is a hard world for a conscientious young man of twenty-seven. Bailey paid the cab and went into the house. It was deliciously cool in the hall, and for a moment peace descended on him. 
but the distant sound of a piano in the upper regions ejected it again by reminding him of his mission he bounded up the stairs and knocked at the door of his sister's private den the piano stopped as he entered and the girl on the music-stool glanced over her shoulder well bailey she said you look warm i am warm said bailey in an aggrieved tone he sat down solemnly i want to speak to you ruth ruth shut the piano and caused the music-stool to revolve till she faced him well she said ruth bannister was an extraordinarily beautiful girl a daughter of the gods divinely tall and most divinely fair from her mother she had inherited the dark eyes and ivory complexion which went so well with her mass of dark hair from her father a chin of peculiar determination and perfect teeth her body was strong and supple she radiated health to her friends ruth was a source of perplexity it was difficult to understand her in the set in which she moved girls married young yet season followed season and ruth remained single and this so obviously of her own free will that the usual explanation of such a state of things broke down as soon as it was tested in shoals during her first two seasons and lately with less unanimity men of every condition from a prince somewhat battered but still a prince to the banister's english butler a good man but at the moment under the influence of tawny port had laid their hearts at her feet one and all they had been compelled to pick them up and take them elsewhere she was generally kind on these occasions but always very firm the determined chin gave no hope that she might yield to importunity the eyes that backed up the message of the chin were pleasant but inflexible generally it was with a feeling akin to relief that the rejected when time had begun to heal the wound contemplated their position there was something about this girl they decided which no fellow could understand she frightened them she made them feel that their hands were large and red and their minds weak and empty she was waiting for something what it was they did not know but it was plain that they were not it and off they went to live happily ever after with girls who ate candy and read best-sellers and ruth went on her way cool and watchful and mysterious waiting the room which ruth had taken for her own gave like all rooms when intelligently considered a clue to the character of its owner it was the only room in the house furnished with any taste or simplicity the furniture was exceedingly expensive but did not look so the keynote of the color scheme was green and white all round the walls were books except for a few prints there were no pictures and the only photograph visible stood in a silver frame on a little table it was the portrait of a woman of about fifty square-jawed tight-lipped who stared almost threateningly out of the frame exceedingly handsome but to the ordinary male too formidable to be attractive on this was written in a bold hand bristling with emphatic downstrokes and wholly free from feminine flourish to my dear ruth from her aunt laura and below the signature in what printers call quotes a line that was evidently an extract from somebody's published works bear the torch and do not falter bailey inspected this photograph with disfavor it always irritated him the information conveyed to him by amused friends that his aunt laura had once described ruth as a jewel in a dustbin seemed to him to carry an offensive innuendo directed at himself and the rest of the dwellers in the banister home 
Also, she had called him a worm. Also, again, his actual encounters with the lady, though few, had been memorably unpleasant. Furthermore, he considered that she had far too great an influence on Ruth. And, lastly, that infernal sentence about the torch, which he found perfectly meaningless, had a habit of running in his head like a catchphrase, causing him the keenest annoyance. He pursed his lips disapprovingly and averted his eyes. "'Don't sniff at Aunt Laura, Bailey,' said Ruth. "'I've had to speak to you about that before. What's the matter? What has sent you flying up here?' "'I've had a shock,' said Bailey. "'I have been very greatly disturbed. I have just been speaking to Clarence Grayling.' He eyed her accusingly through his gold-rimmed glasses. She remained tranquil. "'And what had Clarence to say?' "'A great many things.' "'I gather he told you I had refused him?' "'If it were only that!' Ruth rapped the piano sharply. "'Bailey,' she said, "'wake up. Either get to the point, or go read a book, or do some tatting, or talk about something else. You know perfectly well that I absolutely refuse to endure your impressive manner.' I believe when people ask you the time you look pained and important and make a mystery of it. What's troubling you? I should have thought Clarence would have kept quiet about insulting me, but apparently he has no sense of shame. Bailey gaped. Bailey was shocked and alarmed. Insulting you? What do you mean? Clarence is a gentleman. He is incapable of insulting a woman. Is he? He told me I was a suitable wife for a wretched dwarf with the miserably inadequate intelligence which nature gave him reduced to practically a minus quantity by alcohol. At least he implied it. He asked me to marry him. I have just left him at the club. He is very upset. I should imagine so. A soft smile played over Ruth's face. I spoke to Clarence. I explained things to him. I lit up Clarence's little mind like a searchlight. Bailey rose, tremulous with just wrath. You spoke to him in a way that I can only call outrageous and improper and, er, outrageous. He paced the room with agitated strides. Ruth watched him calmly. If the overflowing emotion of a giant soul in torment makes you knock over a table or smash a chair, she said, I shall send the bill for repairs to you. You had far better sit down and talk quietly. What is worrying you, Bailey? Is it nothing? demanded her brother that my sister should have spoken to a man as you spoke to Clarence Grayling? With an impassioned gesture he sent a flower-vase crashing to the floor. "'I told you so,' said Ruth. "'Pick up the bits, and don't let the water spoil the carpet. Use your handkerchief. I should say that that would cost you about six dollars, dear. Why will you let yourself be so temperamental? Now let me try and think what it is I said to Clarence.' As far as I can remember, it was the mere A-B-C of eugenics. Bailey, on his knees, picking up the broken glass, raised a flushed and accusing face. Ah, eugenics, you admit it. I think, went on Ruth placidly, I asked him what sort of children he thought we were likely to have if we married. A nice girl ought not to think about such things. I don't think about anything else much. A woman can't do a great deal even nowadays, but she can have a conscience and feel that she owes something to the future of the race. She can feel that it is her duty to bring fine children into the world. As Aunt Laura says, she can carry the torch and not falter. Bailey shied like a startled horse at the hated phrase. He pointed furiously at the photograph of the great thinker. You're talking like that, that damned woman! 
bailey precious you mustn't use such wicked wicked words bailey rose pink and wrathful if you're going to break another vase said ruth you will really have to go ever since that that cried bailey ever since aunt laura ruth smiled indulgently that's more like my little man she said he knows as well as i do how wrong it is to swear be quiet ever since aunt laura got hold of you i say you have become a sort of gramophone spouting her opinions but what sensible opinions it's got to stop aunt laura my god who is she just look at her record she disgraces the family by marrying a grubby newspaper fellow called porter he has the sense to die i will say that for him she thrusts herself into public notice by a series of books and speeches on subjects of which a decent woman ought to know nothing and now she gets hold of you fills you up with her disgusting nonsense makes a sort of disciple of you gives you absurd ideas poisons your mind and and er er bailey this is positive eloquence it's got to stop it's bad enough in her but every one knows she is crazy and makes allowances but in a young girl like you he choked and a young girl like me prompted ruth in a low tragic voice it's not right it's it's not proper he drew a long breath it's all wrong it's got to stop he's perfectly wonderful murmured ruth he just opens his mouth and the words come out but i knew he was somebody directly i saw him by his forehead like a dome bailey mopped the dome perhaps you don't know it he said but you're getting yourself talked about you go about saying perfectly impossible things to people you won't marry you have refused nearly every friend i have ruth shuddered your friends are awful bailey they are all turned out in a pattern like a flock of sheep they bleat they have all got little narrow faces without chins or big fat faces without foreheads ugh none of them good enough for you is that it not nearly emotion rendered bailey for him almost vulgar i guess you hate yourself he snapped no sir beamed ruth i think i'm perfectly beautiful bailey grunted ruth came to him and gave him a sisterly kiss she was very fond of bailey though she declined to reverence him cheer up bailey boy she said don't you worry yourself there's a method in my madness i'll find him sooner or later and then you'll be glad i waited him what do you mean why him of course the ideal young man that's who or is it whom i'm waiting for bailey shall i tell you something you're so scarlet already poor boy you ought not to rush around in this hot weather that it won't make you blush it's this i'm ambitious i mean to marry the finest man in the world and have the greatest little old baby you ever dreamed of by the way now i remember i told clarence that bailey uttered a strangled exclamation it has made you blush you turned purple well now you know i mean my baby to be the most splendid baby that was ever born he's going to be strong and straight and clever and handsome and oh everything else you can think of that's why i'm waiting for the ideal young man if i don't find him i shall die an old maid but i shall find him we may pass each other on fifth avenue we may sit next each other at a theatre wherever it is i shall just reach right out and grab him and whisk him away and if he's married already he'll have to get a divorce and i shan't care who he is he may be anyone 
I don't mind if he's a ribbon clerk or a prize-fighter or a policeman or a cab-driver, so long as he's the right man. Bailey plied the handkerchief on his streaming forehead. The heat of the day and the horror of this conversation were reducing his weight at the rate of ounces a minute. In his most jaundiced mood he had never imagined these frightful sentiments to be lurking in Ruth's mind. "'You can't mean that!' he cried. "'I mean every word of it,' said Ruth. "'I hope, for your sake, he won't turn out to be a waiter or a prize-fighter, but it won't make any difference to me.' "'You're crazy!' "'Well, just now you said Aunt Laura was. If she is, I am.' "'I knew it. I said she had been putting these ghastly ideas into your head. I'd like to strangle that woman.' "'Don't you try. Have you ever felt Aunt Laura's biceps? It's like a man's. She does dumbbells every morning.' "'I've got a good mind to speak to father. Somebody's got to make you stop this insanity.' "'Just as you please. But you know how father hates to be worried about things that don't concern business.' Bailey did. His father, of whom he stood in the greatest awe, was very little interested in any subject except the financial affairs of the firm of Bannister and Son. It required greater courage than Bailey possessed to place this matter before him. He had an uneasy feeling that Ruth knew it. "'I would if it were necessary,' he said, "'but I don't believe you're serious.' "'Stick to that idea as long as ever you can, Bailey dear,' said Ruth. "'It will comfort you.' End of Book One, Chapter Two of The Coming of Bill Read by Don W. Jenkins Rancho San Diego, California Shaggybark.blogspot.com